So Amy met David in college. They hit it off quickly. Their friends all told them they were the perfect couple. During college, everything went great. They, they maintained friendships with others. They prioritized their relationship. God was at the center. All of these things were awesome. They got married shortly after graduating, and they lived um, in, in a new city, and they formed this new life together, and everybody looked at them and said, they are the model couple. Then, about four years into their marriage, they had their first baby girl, and David, who had been spoiling his wife over the last many years that they'd been dated and married, he began spoiling that little girl too, taking her on daddy-daughter dates to the donut shop and to children's museums and all of these fun things. And everybody on the outside would go, wow, I wish my husband was more like David. He's great. The, the friends of Amy would go, man, how, how is he so awesome? How did you find him. I wish my husband were like this. He cooks, he cleans, he loves well, he listens well. He was the ideal man. But see, David had one flaw. Once a month, David decided that since he was so loving, so good, so caring, so helpful, that he deserved a night to do whatever he wanted. And so he would be unfaithful to his wife once a month. Is that a good husband? Is that being committed to your bride? Is that being faithful? Is that keeping promises? No, that's not a good husband or spouse. 97% faithful is not faithful. 97% committed is not committed. You can't be 97% monogamous. To be fully devoted means to be fully devoted. 100% committed. We don't want and we would not accept partial devotion in our marriages. We wouldn't want or accept partial devotion from our doctors, from our kids' teachers. We wouldn't want that from the police officers who keep our streets safe. Oh, one night a week, you just take off. No. So then why in the world are we completely content with partial devotion to God? We would not accept that to be our husband, and yet what do we accept in our own spiritual walks? 97% committed would be a pretty high number for us, honestly. Why do we assume that just showing up maybe once every three weeks, that praying every few days whenever troubles arise, that, that, that maybe uh, at least taking our Bibles to church so then we can have something to read and not just the screens, why do we then assume that that's just good enough for God? Why do we assume that prayers we prayed 25 years ago and we've done no single bit of effort to follow up on that is good enough? J.D. Greer says it really succinctly. He says this, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not. Jesus can't be Lord of most and Lord of some of my life. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not. And our text today is Luke chapter 18. So I invite you to turn there. We're going to be in verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. We're going to meet a man that's just asking, am I committed enough? Am I good enough? Have I done enough for you? 
It's interesting because we're coming on the heels of, we've looked at the Pharisee and the tax collector um, two weeks ago, and we see that Jesus exalts the one we think should be um, judged, and he says, no, the Pharisee that thinks he's all got it together, he doesn't go home justified. No, it's the sinner who realizes it. Last week, we saw how Jesus says, no, bring the little children, the one that have nothing to offer me, nothing to gain, the one that have nothing for me, of no value in society. Yeah, they are the ones that you need to be receiving the kingdom like. And so today we have a man asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And maybe you're sitting there too, taking off that opening illustration going, man, I don't know if I'm fully devoted. I don't know if I'm 100% committed. I don't know if I've done enough. Honestly, this situation today seems like a pretty cut and dry situation. This is the ideal candidate to say yes to. He would have had an impeccable resume. He was a ruler of most likely sitting on the Sanhedrin. He would have been the standard of moral and religious life, and yet here he is asking. So as we read that text, it says this, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, and I'm going to pause there for just a second. In the gospel of Luke, everybody that is a follower of Jesus calls him master. This man calls him teacher. He says he's good, so there's a level of respect that he says, I respect you, but I'm holding you at a distance. I'm not following you. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's wanting to verify, hey, am I good with God? Am I in good standing? Did I do enough? Did I pass the test? Verse 19, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, Jesus is pushing him. Hang on. What do you really think of me? Because you've now attached this word good to me, and good is a word we only use of God when we talk about his holiness, his perfection, his greatness. So are you really saying that I am good? Or are you just trying to butter me up? He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 20 he then says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. It's interesting. Jesus says, in a sense, keep the commandments. He could have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That would have been an option too. Here he goes to the Ten Commandments and looks at the second half of them. These are the real tangible, seen options of the commandments. But if you're like I would be sitting in the audience today, would be a little bit perplexed because I want to go to a church that preaches grace, and here Jesus seems to be telling him works. Do this, keep this, honor this, and you will be saved. So what is happening here? Jesus is not calling him to earn his salvation. But Jesus is going to reveal that our works do reveal our faith. Jesus' brother wrote about this. James, faith without works is dead. Works are the overflow of our faith. The works that we do declare our faith. 
They reveal our faith. They declare. They, they, they show. As I was thinking about how these two things are tied together this week, here's what I came to. True faith leads to loving God and loving our neighbor. True faith will lead me to that. On the other side of that coin, loving God and loving my neighbor can only be done and can only stay being done if I have faith. Because the behavior modification of trying to make all of these things happen will not last unless Jesus has changed my heart and I am enduring the process of sanctification where he is making me more and more like him every day. Jesus gives him that list. Do not murder. If I was going through that list and hearing Jesus, I would have probably said, do not murder. Okay, check. I haven't killed anybody. That's a good thing. You probably want that out of your pastor, right? That would be a, probably be a red flag or at least an orange flag, right, um, that we would have to discuss. Do not murder. But then, you know, I'd be going, oh, but I have read Matthew 5 that Jesus says that anger and murder are connected and all of this. But, but he just said, do not murder. Yes, check. Do not commit adultery, okay? Check. But then Jesus also talked about lust and sexual immorality and all of this. But once again, we're just going by the letter of the law. Jesus says, do not commit adultery, okay? Check. Do not steal. So far, so good. I think that's a check, unless you count that water cup that I got that shot of Mountain Dew with, you know, because I was kind of cheap. And so, uh, but that was, that was years ago. That was years ago. I, I, you know, I mostly... You know, I mostly don't steal. I mean, you know, that cookie's kind of sitting there, you know. You're tempted. What about lie? I mostly tell the truth. Isn't that how he would say it? I mostly tell the truth. Which that may be the lie in and of itself. Honor your father and mother. Jesus I mean, you know how they just stay on you, how they nag you, or how they frustrate you. But, I mean, if we're thinking about it, yes, I get frustrated with them, but I think I honor them. I, I try to follow the rules, and I respect them. So I'm going to lean check here. So I could see myself playing out that checklist and going, okay, uh, I'm pretty close. I'm passable, right? Like, I'm better than most. It's interesting, the rich ruler did not need that. Verse 21, it says, he boldly proclaims, all these I have kept from my youth. In fact, he had probably kept them very strictly. He was probably the most righteous person in that interaction besides Jesus. He had dedicated his life to being perfectly correct in the law. And so he can proudly proclaim, yeah, yeah, I've done that. He was highly religious, but what we will learn is that being religious is not enough. I read a few months back or a while back, it says religion is a great substitute for surrender. Religion's a great substitute for surrender. Preacher, just tell me what I need to do so I can check that off the box, so I can put it on my to-do list, and I will accomplish everything I need to do. We would much prefer that, right? Religion makes us feel good because it gives us boxes to check and check off. Religion boosts our pride and betrays our need of God. Did you catch that? Religion tells you, yeah, great job, Jordan. But also, you don't really need God. You're doing it all on your own. See, the rich man was good, but he wasn't God's. 
In Matthew, they double-checked to make sure he didn't forget anything, but Luke jumped straight to the point. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, when he said, yeah, I've kept all these since my youth, he said, okay, one thing you still lack, sell everything, give it to the poor, distribute it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. As I was reading through Luke's account, I also looked over at Mark's and at Matthew's, and I want you to catch what Mark says. Jesus says, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you still lack, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. Did you catch that? Jesus isn't upset with him. Jesus isn't trying to catch him. Jesus isn't trying to find a loophole to uh, disqualify him. Jesus isn't creating more rules to make it more challenging because he doesn't want people coming to him. No, Jesus looks at him and loves him and wants him to take this task and to do it because Jesus desires this man to be his disciple. He's not against him, he's for him. I think we've read this passage too many times thinking, well, Jesus is taking this cocky guy and just adding another thing to it, something that he couldn't do. No, Jesus loved him, but he knew that inside of this man, something was holding him back. He hadn't fully given his life to the God he claimed to love and serve. Some of us may read Jesus' command here as just increasing the works He's saying, yeah, you followed the law, great job, but actually let's add this to it to make it a little more challenging, a little more difficult. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is revealing the idol that is in this man's heart and in this man's life. One commentator said, Jesus requires from us what we lean onto for security. Jesus pokes at exactly what you think will keep you safe and secure that thing you lean on and believe in to save you or to help you or to be enough for you. As we said to start, either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not. He's either fully devoted or he's not. You're either fully surrendered or you're not. You're either fully committed or you're not. See, the rich man preferred rules over relationship. He preferred the law over to surrender. The law, I can do on my own. He preferred checking the boxes. And I wonder how many of us fall into that same category of preferring rules. Just tell me what I have to do, God, and I will do it instead of relationship. See, for too long, I fear that the church has appeased the conscience of the religious and failed to call them to relationship. We've confirmed the partially committed and say, oh, that's probably good enough. And we've confused this call to surrender. Perhaps we've been too cowardly to call people to surrender in full devotion because if so, we wouldn't have anybody following us. We wouldn't have any churches to gather in. We wouldn't have any givers to support us. I'm afraid we've given false hope and false security to so many that claim a 10, 15, 25-year-old prayer and whose life has been in complete rebellion to that one claim they made as a teenager. Faith without works is dead. Works declare your faith. 
And for too many times, I fear that we have stamped religious people as saved people. And Jesus says, yeah, you're quite good at religion. But he doesn't say you're going to inherit eternal life. We've got to be very careful here because what Jesus is calling us to is to make him the Lord of our life. Not just a part of our daily practice. Jesus desires and demands to be the Lord of our life. That means He is leading, He is controlling, He is directing, and He is providing. We must stop claiming to be Christians when all we do is play church, pretend to pray, mask our sins, and live in opposition to His will and His way every single day. God's not confused, He's not mocked, He's not duped by this, so let's stop trying to do it. Just like the rich ruler tried to rely simply on all that he could do, Jesus says, you've got to be surrendered to me. In the same way, you and I cannot appease God with our rule following. We cannot appease Him by going, look, I attended church. Look, I gave every once in a while. Look, I have a lot of Bible trivia locked in my head, and I can name most of the books of the Bible and the sons of Abraham. Or also, we go to Him, and I think this is what has duped us the most. We go, but look at all the sins I've avoided, God. Just like the rich ruler saying, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I've kept all the law since I was a boy. I think we have fallen into the trap of believing that we are living sinless lives. Look at what I don't do, God. And we give God our resume and we say, look, God, look how good I am. Look how great I've done. Look at all that I have avoided. And see, I think that Satan has busied religious people with trying to insulate themselves from any possible temptation. And in doing so, we have insulated ourselves from the world. And so when I ask, when was the last time that you spent an extended period of time with someone that is a, not a believer? When was the last time someone who did not have the same faith as you entered your home? When was the last time you shared a meal with someone who does not agree the same way you agree? And we go, well, I don't know. We don't associate with them. Well, our Jesus sure did a lot of that. And yet we wear it as a badge. If I'm not around sinners. And Jesus would say, oh gosh, guys, you're missing it. It's not about avoiding sin. Yes, I want you to avoid sin, sure. But Jesus' final words were not, and stay away from Harry Hines Boulevard, and stay away from alcohol, or stay away from drugs, or stay away from cussing. No, Jesus didn't say, give us a list of sins. You know what Jesus did? He said, go and make disciples. He said, go live out your faith. Go be my witnesses. And we want to bring a resume of all the sins we've avoided. And God says, but what good were you? What difference did you make? Who else is going to be in my kingdom because of you? We like to brag about all the rules we avoid. And we don't ever realize the freedom that Jesus has called us to to then go make a difference. The rich ruler was more devoted to his religion and to his money than to his God. The rich ruler was more devoted to his money and to his religion 
than to his God. Verse 23, when he heard what Jesus said, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Two chapters before this, in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus teaches this, no servant can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he gets straight to the point. You cannot serve God and money. And yet this is our attempt so often. That was the attempt of the ruler, devoted to his religion and to his money and not to his God. So I end, and let's end practically with this. I want you to look inwardly. Who or what is your master? Who are you serving? What are you serving? What's stolen your heart? What's taken the throne of your life? What are you unwilling to release? What are you not willing to give up? What dreams or goals or desires or wishes or future or expectation are you not willing to sacrifice? Are you not willing to surrender? For some, it may be the idea of marriage. And you're going, I'm going to pursue that with all of my effort and God can get whatever's left over. For some of you, that may be your happiness. And you try to find that in money or a job or a relationship or a city or a, a, a hobby. For some of you, it's your comfort. You are so nervous and anxious about all of life that all that life can throw at you, so you seek to protect yourself at all costs. You're not just risk-averse, you're risk-allergic. You can't even be near it. Because you have to have that comfort and security and knowledge and understanding of what's going to happen. For most of us, probably it's money. We can't have enough of it. It's an insatiable desire for more and more and more. Jesus will make the point a few verses later in Luke chapter 18 that wealth is one of the greatest hindrances to salvation. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God. It is one of the greatest hindrances of salvation, and yet it is the one thing that probably more than anything I want my son to experience, and it just does not line up. We pursue wealth, and we desire wealth, and we believe that it will make us happy, and yet God and Jesus are teaching us, listen, it's going to make it harder because it's going to steal and rob your affections from me. What is your idol? What are you more devoted to than God? I'll use J.D. Greer one more time. He's a preacher over in uh, North Carolina. He says that in all of us, there is a throne and a cross. And if you're on the throne, then Christ must be on the cross. He's the one that has to sacrifice. And yes, you understand that Jesus made the sacrifice for you. We get all that, but... But what he does call us to then is, is it says in Luke chapter 9 that we, if we were to follow him, we were to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We are to put Jesus on the throne of our life as the ruler, as the leader, as our king, as our Lord. And we put ourselves on the cross and say, I am willing to submit to whatever you call me to do. I am willing to sacrifice. So let's end super practically. Some of you are sitting in fear this morning going, there's no way that I've done enough. I don't think I could say I'm fully devoted. I'm nowhere close to as good as that rich ruler, and he walks away sad. I don't know what Jesus would do with me. 
And so some of you will say, you know what, I'm going to try harder. I've got to be better. I've got to do more. I've got to be more righteous. And I love your zeal, but you're missing the point. What we need to understand is that to be fully devoted to God is to be fully surrendered to God. That means I am willing to trust you with everything. Does that mean he's going to take everything from you right now? No. But he does call you to surrender to him. So how can we be fully devoted? The first thing is to be surrendered to Christ. Not simply as our Savior, but as our Lord. Without this step, none of the other steps make sense. If you are not surrendered to Christ, all of the other stuff is just a religion you've made in for yourself. We have to just surrender to him and say, Jesus, I believe in what you have done on that cross, and I want to follow you because I believe that you are enough and I'm not enough. So we have to surrender. What does that look like? It looks like Ruth saying, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I just want to be with you, and I'm just going to follow you. Wherever you say go, I'm going. I love Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. He says, go to this distant land. Leave your family, leave your, leave your people, leave your land. Just go. And it says in verse 4 of chapter 12 of Genesis, it says, so Abram went to the land that God was going to show him. There was no coordinates. There was no point on the map. It was a direction, not a destination. And he went. So we have to surrender to Christ. Number two, we need to uncover the idols in our lives. We all have them. What are you unwilling to release? The rich man had great wealth, and Jesus poked at that to reveal it to him. Following Jesus would have cost him greatly, and following Jesus will cost you greatly. Uncover what you're unwilling to give up or what you're worshiping with your time, with your wallet, with your energy, with your affections. Number three, put them to death. We have to put the idols to death. They cannot remain. They cannot remain on life support. We can't have a secret bank account that just says, okay, I'm going to give you a lot, God, but I'm going to have this over here. And it's a secret trust that if, I, if, you don't, if you're not good enough, then I always can bail myself out. No, you have to put to death the idols. Finally, we're daily devoted to Jesus. This looks like personal devotions, and it looks like corporate worship. It looks like accountability with friends, and it looks like dedicated discipleship spaces. But we are devoted daily to our God. We're not playing church once a week. We're not, do you know the average of church attendance by most people is one out of three or one out of four weeks? That's what a regular attender to church is now called. It's a lot of people who think they have the stamp for heaven already. And I'm not making a I'm not making a final decision. I'm not the judge. But I think God calls us to a lot more than just, eh, when it's convenient to you and when you don't have soccer tournaments. The rich ruler is such a sharp contrast to what we studied last week. See, the rich ruler comes to Jesus and says, look how much I bring. I've done such a great job. I just want to double check I'm in. Last week, we looked at the little children who nobody in society liked or cared about. And Jesus says, bring them to me. They have no value, nothing to offer, nothing to bring. And Jesus says, unless you inherit the kingdom of God like these little children, you will not experience it. And here's the rich ruler going, but look at all I've done. And he walks away sad. And you know who gets to enjoy the presence of Jesus and experience with Jesus is the children who go, I don't have anything, God. 
But I have you. And I trust that you're enough. I've said it three weeks in a row, and so this is just going to be kind of the end of Luke 18 for us. We're going to start a new series next week on the person of David. But I'm going to hammer this in case we haven't heard it enough. God doesn't want your resume. He wants your heart. We sit here and we try to offer him, but look. And he says, no, you've missed the gospel. It's not about what you've done. It's about what I've done. It's not about what you bring. It's about the gift I give you. It's about saying, as the first, uh, as the tax collector said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So friends, I invite you to get to that place, to drop what you have done, what you rely on, what you lean on to, and believe Hey, religion's not going to cut it, but relationship with the one who saves me is all I need. So I invite you and I encourage you.